you would turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. I'm going to read the first three verses this morning. Finally in the last chapter. Which means we'll be in here for about 20 more weeks. So, No, actually we're going to, I'm hoping to finish Easter Sunday. Because uh, it ends with an Easter blessing. So I figured it would be a good way to end the book as well. And we'll go from there. But... Um, just going to read three short verses this morning, three very practical verses that flow out of all of this theology that we have been learning all of this time. Um, if someone has understood the love of God in Christ Jesus, it should flow out of their lives in love toward neighbor. Um, in fact, I was thinking of the text that we just read from Leviticus 19. If, if you didn't know it, Leviticus 19 is the one place in the Old Testament from which we get the command, love your neighbor as yourself. That's when Jesus is quoting the two greatest commandments, love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, this one comes from Leviticus 19. So it's a very important chapter that we just read, especially in reference to uh, the idea that uh, in the fallen society, in a world that's broken, you literally have people putting stumbling blocks before blind men, and you have people cursing the deaf because they know they can't hear you. Uh, it reminded me of, uh, even as we were just reading that text, it reminded me of when I used to, I used to work in a uh, Mexican-American restaurant that was called El Pollo Asado, which means the chicken charbroiled. And uh, I remember I had two employees there that were much older than I were that, that were uh, Hispanic, and they would always say something about my mother in Spanish, and I didn't understand what they were saying, but I knew they were talking about my mother. I thought, that's not the way to love your neighbor as yourself. So anyway, uh, this message this morning is to show how Christians ought to love their neighbor as themselves. Hebrews 13, 1-3. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your help again as we read your word. Lord, that you would give us much wisdom from it, that you would help us to see Christ in it, that you would give us the power uh, and the desire to live according to your holy laws, that we would know the love of God in Jesus and that we would know something of what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite movies is entitled To End All Wars. And it's basically a, a film that's uh, loosely based on the, the bridge over the River Kwai. And it takes place in a Japanese prisoner of war camp during World War II, in which the, the prisoners were forced to build the Burma Railway from Thailand to, to, to Burma. And it was also called, as the, it was called the Death Railway because over 100,000 people died during its construction. Uh, a brutal way of dying as well in the jungle, very, very difficult labor as prisoners. Uh, but the story is told from the perspective of a captain, a Scottish captain named Ernest Gordon, who's recounting the Christian faith and hope of a number of the prisoners who have come to faith in Christ, some of them even in that camp itself, but describing their faith in the midst of extreme brutality and extreme uh, beating and torture and even starvation. Uh, a number of the men died through starvation 
because they, they were not fed well at all. It, it's not exactly what I would call a family-friendly movie, So because I've mentioned it to you in this room, but don't have your kids watch this. It's, it's pretty brutal. It discovers, it uh, depicts the, the, the utter horror of war and certainly the utter horror of a prison camp. Uh, but in a, in a very remarkable scene, after one man had come under the influence of the gospel, a very selfish man, all of a sudden he does this extraordinary act that really changes the camp as a whole in how the men treated one another. Uh, on a very hot afternoon in the camp, a shovel went missing from one of the storage sheds. And as a result, the officer in charge assumes that one of the prisoners had stolen it and immediately demanded that it be returned or else everyone in the camp would be punished. And when he says punished, he means punished. And of course, not a, a soldier moved a muscle and as a result, the officer in charge went over to the closest man to him and just put a gun to his head and was ready to fire it, and he meant business. And it was at that moment that this man, who had been very selfish, very self-centered, all of a sudden steps forward and said, I, I stole the, the shovel. And uh, immediately the officer found another shovel nearby and just started just whacking him on the back again and again and again until he lost all ability in his legs to, to move. And um, all the soldiers are watching just this brutality. And then uh, one of the other Japanese soldiers runs to the commander in charge and said, ah, ah mistake. We, uh, we miscounted shovels today. And uh, because of that one man's sacrifice and his love for his brothers, you see just the camp that had, was full of fear and animosity, even toward each other because of the brutality they're experiencing, they were beginning to learn to love one another and to trust one another. And many came to faith in Christ in the midst of this horrible scene. When the New Testament, on the night before Jesus died, if you remember, he was in the upper room with his disciples, he gives them one last command before he leaves them. And he says to them, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And, and that's pretty much the gist of what the author of Hebrews is saying in one of his final commands as well. He's about to close his letter to the Hebrews. One more time, I want you to love one another, to learn to love as Christ has loved you. Now, we have to always remember that every command that we receive, even the command to love, comes directly from the throne of God as our King. And to know that as Christians, uh, the Lord, in, through our seeking the Lord, it's not just a matter of he has punched our ticket to heaven and now we've trusted in Christ, we're just waiting to go to heaven, but rather he's teaching us what it means to live in a new society, under a new king, a new Lord, no longer under the prince of darkness in that old dominion, but under a new dominion of love and, and freedom. One of the uh, famous quotes that I remember in terms of preaching actually comes uh, from one of the early New England Puritans in America in the, the 1700s. Um, I think he was Cotton Mather who said, uh, the purpose of preaching is to restore the throne of God to the hearts of men. To remember that God rules over it all. And part of that command that God gives us is to establish this new kingdom of love. We just finished chapter 12 where the author of Hebrews is telling us to be grateful for receiving such a kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a, a kingdom that is 
full of reverence and awe for our Savior and our Creator. And, and now what does it mean to live in such a way that, that pleases our God? And so that's uh, what he's leading us into in these last exhortations. The, the first three commands are all centered around this primary command to love our neighbor that flows out of our love for Christ. And so I want to give you this morning three expectations of our king now that we've come into this new kingdom in terms of love. First, we are expected to love our brothers. Second, we're expected to love strangers. And third, we're expected especially to love those who are suffering. So let's take a look at those in their turn. First, we're expected to love our, our brothers. Probably most of you know that the word Philadelphia, the city Philadelphia, literally means the city of brotherly love, right? comes from the Greek, Philadelphia. That's literally what it is in the Greek. So in verse 1, he uses that same word in the Greek when he says, let Philadelphia continue. Let brotherly love continue continue, which is referring to that mutual care and regard for our brothers and sisters in Christ, just as we finished last week's uh, text, explaining that when we come to Christ, we are coming to the assembly of the firstborn, which basically means that we all are elevated to a new status in our union with Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. We now are called firstborn sons. We've received all the blessings of God. We share in a mutual inheritance in Jesus Christ. And as a result, we also have a mutual duty to one another to love those who have been blessed in the same way that we have to share in that blessing with one another. And so, as you know, we're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're also, at times, even called to love our enemies. But this particular call to love our brothers even trumps those because now we have a love that surpasses even our ordinary family bonds of human love. If you remember Matthew chapter 12, when Jesus is... Uh, teaching the disciples his mother and his brothers actually come to sort of take him away because they think he's crazy uh, because he is, uh, you know, claiming to be the Messiah at this point, and they, they're afraid of what's going to happen, so they want to take him away from the crowds. But then Jesus looks at his disciples and he says to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward those in the circle, he says, here are my mother, here are my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. One of the obvious signs of a disciple of Christ is that he or she has a newfound love for the brotherhood of Christ. John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And all the disciples pick up on this. It's again and again and again. They continue to reiterate the same command to love the brothers. Romans 12.10. Paul says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor to each other. Same thing, Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. He says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And then in chapter 2, verse 17 of that same epistle, he says simply, love the brotherhood. Love each other. It's obvious at some point the Hebrews were, were seeking to love their brothers in this way because in chapter 10 he had shown, he had reminded them of how they have done this in the past, but the very fact that he tells them continue to do this implies that perhaps they had 
taken a hiatus from loving one another in this way, more than likely during a time of persecution. Uh, as you know, when uh, things get dark and troublesome, we have a tendency to become much more self-centered and, and fend for ourselves. I just saw a clip of a woman uh, this morning on the news uh, in Russia right now, there is a, a run on the supermarkets for sugar because, uh, again, the, the, it seems like uh, there's less sugar. At least that's the perceived need at, at the moment. And so you, you see all these people going to the supermarket trying to get the, the last thing of sugar. And there's 10, 10 bags of sugar. And one woman takes all 10 of them and tries to put them in her cart. And everyone else is like, I don't think so. And they start taking the sugar out of her cart, and then she's trying. This is an older woman. She's like in her 70s at least, 80s, maybe 90s. I can't tell. Uh, but she's trying to sort of cover over the sugar so nobody takes it because she is afraid. She's afraid of what tomorrow might hold. And as a result, uh, people are fighting in the supermarkets. It was actually during a similar time in Nazi Germany when Dietrich Bonhoeffer began to understand the concept of what it means to love the brothers. Uh, again, just as an aside, if you've never heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we just happen to have a copy of his biography in the library. You can go look at it. Um, but when it became dangerous for Christians in Germany to gather in a church that wasn't controlled by the government, he began to serve in an underground seminary to train other pastors. And he realized that he had to have these young men come and live with him in order to really spend the time that was needed to train them. And so that was when he began to really understand the importance of fellowship amongst the brotherhood. So he wrote a book called Living Together, which I don't think we have a copy of that one, but we will soon. Uh, but Bonhoeffer in that book describes the church as a community of love that first focuses its attention on Christ. And as, it, as each individual is focusing on Christ, then the love of Christ just naturally flows to each other. That's what is meant to happen. That's how it happens. And he says, when that happens, even Christians are regularly bringing the message of the gospel to each other on a daily basis. But he says, that's how it's meant to be. Of course, the church isn't always that way, but it's meant to be that. This strong community of love, but even in the New Testament, we see that... Uh, uh, the synagogues and, and those who were gathered as the people of God often didn't love each other in this way. And that's, that's why Jesus is rebuking Israel with the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's a rebuke is what it is. Because you have even the most notable Israelites, priests and Levites, who are not even taking care of their own brothers. They're having them lying on the side of the ground, bleeding, and they walk on the other side of the road. It's the Samaritan who shows them, this is how you love a brother. 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, the apostle John said this, By this we know love, that Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. He says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Obviously it doesn't. If one loves the Lord and is abiding in Christ's love, he will naturally open his heart to love his brothers. Uh, a number of years ago, I want to say probably a hundred years ago, uh, there's a story of a young man 
probably in his teens, who had begun to go to Sunday school class uh, somewhere in a church in Chicago, and all of a sudden his parents moved to another side of the, the city, uh, probably about you know 20 miles away or so. And yet every Sunday before church, he would walk the 20 miles to go to the previous Sunday school class that he was a part of. And when he was asked about it, he said, well, just, why don't you just go to Sunday school where you're going, you know, at the new church where your parents are. And, and he says, you know, anybody could do that, I suppose. But he says, but as for me, I'm going to come here because I know that they love a feller here. So he continues to come back because he, he, he recognizes the love of the Christian community where he was at, and he didn't want to miss out on that. If only the church always made you feel that way, each one of us. Of course, it starts with each of us spending time in God's Word and in prayer. As we spend time with God, we have something to give to each other. If we don't spend time in the fellowship of the light, all we have is darkness. We can't give anything to anyone. We're not profitable to anyone. So, if I were to tell you, if you think of it this way, that every time you don't read your Bible and every time you don't pray, the church as a whole is weaker, would you believe that? If half the church on any given week was not spending time in God's Word, how weak do you think that church would be? You see, it's important, not just for your own benefit, but for mine, for the rest of us. You see, we are in this together in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the Apostle Paul is constantly praying for the community, not, not just that they would love, but first of all, that they would understand the love of God in Christ Jesus, how, the, how deeply he loves each one of us, so that we then can overflow with that love and the fullness of the Spirit with each other. What a great prayer that is. He's, he's praying. We ought to pray the same prayer. You know, Lord, may we know the depths of Christ's love for us and be filled with the fullness of God that we would have something to offer to one another. That's the first thing, to love the brothers. But then secondly, he also has this expectation that we're to love strangers. Now, it's not as obvious in the English language as it is in the Greek. In the first two verses, he actually uses the same word with different extensions on it. First, he speaks of Philadelphia, brotherly love. But then in verse 2, he speaks of, can't say it now, Philizenius, which is strangerly love, if you will. Um, literally the love of strangers. Most of your English translation will just use the word hospitality. And that's a, a good translation of that because that is what it means. In fact, in our English language, if you think about it, the word hospital, the word hostel and hotel are all related. They all mean to minister to strangers, to love strangers. That's, that's the root of each one of those words. You may not feel like they love you very much at hostels and hospitals, but that is their purpose. And, and the reason for that was because back then they didn't have hotels. They had a few inns uh, back then. They weren't uh, very safe to be in. They were often very dangerous and even notorious for immorality of all kinds. So you could see why a Christian especially would have a hard time uh, feeling comfortable going to one of these places in, in, in one ancient account, a philosopher actually compares innkeeping to that of running a brothel. That's the norm back then. In another account, one traveler asks another if he can tell which inn in the city has the fewest amount of fleas. They didn't have TripAdvisor back then. 
And in one of Plato's works, he tells of an instance in which an innkeeper is actually holding his guest hostage for ransom. He came in to get a bed for the night, and now he's being held hostage. Thank God for Hampton Inn and Holiday Inn and all those other places, right? But on top of those problems, Christians especially were having even more difficulty finding a place to stay because persecution was breaking out against them. And so they weren't as welcome, and they didn't feel as safe to stay in certain places. So if you had family members in the area, great, you could stay with family, but if not, you really had to rely upon the hospitality of strangers. And so we see again and again in the New Testament, Romans 12, verse 13, the Apostle Paul exhorts his hearers, show hospitality to the saints. Show them hospitality. They're in desperate need of it. Same way, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, he says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly and show hospitality to one another without grumbling. We actually see a, a few examples of that in the book of Acts. Uh, one particular example, Acts 21, verse 16, Luke tells us that he and his co-workers, including Paul, more than likely, lodged with an early Christian disciple named Manasson, M-N-A-S-O-N, a man from Cyprus. He was a, a uh, um, assumingly a brand new Christian, was hosting these Christians coming from another city um, for that reason. But the actual reason for giving hospitality, according to this text, uh, the author of Hebrews says, is that thereby some have entertained strange or angels unawares. Now, the, the occasion he has in mind, particularly coming from the Old Testament, is when Abraham is now hosting basically two angels and the Lord himself, if you remember, when they show up at his house. Of course, Abraham doesn't know it. Nevertheless, showing his uh, gift for hospitality, he immediately goes out and finds some water to wash their feet. He bakes them, or at least has some servants help him to bake bread and to even uh, slaughter a calf so that they might eat well that night. But it's not that the author of Hebrews is suggesting in some way that uh, angels are constantly masquerading as strangers uh, running around so that we can host angels here and there. But his point is that you never know what can happen through one act of love, what benefit might come to you. In fact, if you think about it, Lot entertained the same two angels that Abraham had, and if he had not entertained them, he would have been destroyed in Sodom and Gomorrah along with the rest of the inhabitants of that city. But it was because he had entertained them, he had received some benefit from them as well. If you remember Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 25, uh, Jesus goes even farther than that. You're not just hosting angels, but if you're hosting a brother in the Lord, you're actually hosting him, Jesus himself. He says, for I was hungry, and what? You gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it unto me. Of course, the implication in that passage is that we're called to give hospitality, particularly to our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Uh, but John has even a more particular group in mind. In 3 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, you guys know 3 John well, right? 3 John he says this, Beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all of your efforts for the brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. 
you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So in this particular case, John has specifically gospel preachers and missionaries, if you will, in mind when he's saying particularly be hospitable to them because they're advancing the gospel throughout your city and throughout this region. Make sure that you help them in building up the church of Christ through your hospitality. You may not be a preacher. You may not be a missionary, but you can, you can help. And it's possible that the author of Hebrews has these guys in mind, uh, particularly. It's also possible that he has just the brothers in mind. But he doesn't state explicitly who he's talking about. just says to show hospitality. And so I think you can apply that also to unbelievers as well as to believers, but with the implication that the believers certainly come first. Um, but if you haven't read it, Rosaria Butterfield wrote a book called The Gospel Comes with the House Key. I know a number of the women of the church have read it. But because she herself came to faith in Christ as a result of a man and a woman hosting her for dinner, even though she was a lesbian professor of literature, had her over to their house numerous times, and that's how she came to faith in Christ. And so as a result, her ministry now is primarily hospitality, hosting her neighbors, hosting even strangers on a regular basis to give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so... In her book, she says this, radical ordinary hospitality. It's an unusual combination there, but she's saying it's radical, but it's also ordinary. This kind of hospitality is to view strangers as neighbors and neighbors as you would the family of God, seeing God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. She says it's to view your home not as yours, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom that everything that we own ought to be used for the furtherance of God's kingdom. She says it's an everyday thing at her house. She says it starts early with minestrone soup simmering on one burner and a pot of steamed rice warming on another, and it ends late in the day with her husband making beds on the couches and blowing up air mattresses for a traveling family who's stranded in town. A truly hospitable heart, she says, anticipates every day Christ-centered table fellowship and guests who are genuinely in need. Such a heart seeks opportunities to serve one's neighbor, whether it's talking, whether it's taking an older, older neighbor to the doctor, babysitting on the fly, or making room for a family displaced by a flood, or even in a worldwide refugee crisis. One of the first Christian biographies ever read, it's pretty soon after I became a Christian, was the biography of Keith Green, uh, the singer-songwriter, I was really impressed with this guy. He had died before I even knew who he was. Um, but I was impressed because he began to put out his music for free and his concerts for free. And at the time, you know, records, you know, the circle things that some of you have forgotten but then have brought back in. They're kind of cool now. Um, he, would sell, he would give his records away for free. People complained that, well, what if they don't have a record player? He said, well, I'll purchase a record player for them. And I thought, really? Wow. But was, what was even more impressive was not the music, but the fact that every time he saw a stranger who was in need, even if they were a prostitute, an alcoholic, or a drug addict, he invited them to his home to stay if need be. So he did that for a while until his house was so full he couldn't host anymore. So he decided to buy the house next door 
to host more people. Of course, eventually he ran out of space with that too, so he rented five more homes on the same street in a suburb of Los Angeles. He had 75 people living with him on a regular basis. It got to be too much and too expensive, so he moved to Texas to buy more land so he could host more people. Tell me the man believed in Christ, wanted to minister and to love his neighbors. Now, not everybody has the same gift of mercy that he has, or the same gift of hospitality, but yet the, the principle is the same, that we're not to be xenophobic or fearing of strangers, but rather philozenius, lovers of strangers, both those who are preaching the gospel, that we can help them in their labor, but even also to those who are in need of the gospel as also an aspect of advancing the kingdom of God. Then third, in addition to loving our brothers particularly, loving the strange brothers who are from another land and also other strangers, he also says to love those who suffer. Verse 3, he says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. As, as much as ancient innkeepers were well known for their notorious behavior, the prison keepers were even worse. Uh, very brutal and uh, apathetic toward their prisoners. Uh, again, they could easily starve to death because they did not provide any food for them. They could uh, die of cold because they wouldn't provide any blankets for them. They didn't give them anything, nothing. Uh, back then, there were no uh, uh, cruel and unusual punishments listed uh, in that sense. Uh, you can see how grateful the Apostle Paul would have been. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, he says this, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. At other times, Paul was pleading with the brothers in Colossae, saying, Remember my chains for they had forgotten about him. He even says to Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Don't be ashamed of me as his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. This is what the author of Hebrews has in mind, particularly remember prisoners as though you were in prison with them, he says. Uh, during a, a previous time of persecution, again, Hebrews chapter 10, he tells them, you've done this before. You've, you've, you've done this. You've helped your brothers. You, you've ministered to them in their need. But he's saying, continue to remember them. Why would he say that? Well, our tendency is to forget over time. We, 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 we're pretty good at ministering to people when they're hurting at first, but then over time we forget about it. Out of sight, out of mind. And that's why uh, part of the reason why we watched the video earlier this morning, Richard Wilbrand, if you could hear what, the, what was being said on the, uh, the video screen, um, he started the voice of the martyrs because so many people had forgotten about those who were suffering for the faith and, and, and being mistreated and, and, and still stuck in chains. It was after 1948. He was publicly condemned for himself speaking out against communism and speaking out against Soviet-controlled churches. He wanted to be able to preach the gospel freely, and that wasn't allowed and so when he began to speak up, they imprisoned him, they tortured him again and again and again for 14 years, beat him again and again and again. Finally, some Christians were able to gather together and they paid $10,000 to ransom him 
which was four times the amount that was the going rate, if you will, because they knew he was such an important person to the churches. When he finally got out, all the Christians that knew him begged him to leave. And so he finally came to the United States, and that's when he began that nonprofit ministry, ministering not only to the prisoners who were under communist regimes at the time, but then branched out to all sorts of places of persecution around the world. Just as Jesus spoke of those who welcomed him as a stranger in the sheep and the goats, he also spoke of those who visited him in prison when they visited his brothers who were in chains. It's clear that the the Christian community took this very seriously, especially in the first century. One ancient critic of Christianity is named Lucian. He, he, he told a very remarkable story. It wasn't for the sake of Christianity. In fact, he was a critic of it. Uh, he, he wrote a, 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 a story called The Death or Passing of Peregrinus. And in that story, he's talking about this man who was a cynic philosopher who pretended to be a Christian just to see what would happen. And uh, eventually, he found himself imprisoned. And what the writer is saying about this circumstance, he says, the Christians left nothing undone in their efforts to rescue him from his chains. But when they realized that it was impossible to do so, even the Christian widows and their orphan children could be seen waiting near the prison to minister to his needs, having meals brought in to him, reading scripture to him daily, which I'm sure he didn't appreciate, and even had a couple of men who bribed the guards in order that they might sleep in the prison cell with him that night. Another account, the Apology of Aristides, a secular author, describes the care of Christians for those who are in prison. He says this, if they hear that any of their number is imprisoned or oppressed for the name of their Messiah, all of them provide for his needs. And if it's possible that he may be delivered, they seek to do so. And if there's among them a man that is poor or needy and they have not abundance of necessaries to help him, in other words, they can't help him, they fast for two or three days in order that they may supply his need with their food. Wow. Of course, again, it doesn't mean that Christians are only to minister to those who are imprisoned, but generally speaking, to all those who are suffering, to all those who are afflicted, even a professing Christian who was imprisoned for a crime that he did commit, that duty still was placed upon them to minister to the Christians in need. The same way it's also, again, uh, that brotherly love also extends to those outside of the faith, even if it's not the priority, it's still included. Our own denomination, I don't know if you knew this or not, but the PCA has a, a ministry specifically oriented to those who are in prison called metanoia ministries. And the word metanoia in the Greek literally means to repent or to have a change of heart. And so you're ministering to people who are trying to escape from that cycle of degradation. And uh, what they do is they purposely pair up believers with those who are in prison in a discipleship program. So they're giving them both mercy as well as evangelism and discipleship, trying to encourage them in their faith and helping them when they get out uh, of prison as well. So it's a, it's, uh, you could tell that, that because the physical needs are primarily met now through the government, through the prison system, it's the spiritual needs that are even more important. And so that's uh, a part of that ministry that's part of our denomination. But this, this call to help those who are suffering is, is very broad. Um, it, 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 he also includes those who are mistreated or, or those who are treated evilly by others. Again, back in chapter 11, 
when he was describing the Hall of Fame of Faith, he also mentioned a number of believers, if you remember, who were destitute, afflicted, and mistreated for the faith, right? They weren't in prison, but they were mistreated in, in, in some way or another. And, and he also shares that Moses himself chose to suffer mistreatment along with his fellow Israelites rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a time. And so one of the hallmarks of the Christian faith that can be seen even through that, through that faith, is the idea that Christian love is always expressed through deeds of love to, to others, right? So I've been brushing up on my Spanish, not because anybody's calling my mother any, any names in that regard, but um, I'm about to teach a class coming up here in the spring in Colombia. And uh, one of the things I love about learning other languages is you always look at the same words a little bit differently, even in the English language. But um, the, the word for mercy in Spanish, which is also the same in Latin, is misericordia, uh, which basically means the lover of a miserable one. Um, if you remember last week, I had mentioned in passing uh, the uh, story Les Miserables or Les Miserables, uh, the idea of the miserable ones. Uh, the idea is that if you love Christ, you also love those who suffer. You love those who are in misery. And that's what mercy literally means, at least according to the Latin and according to the, the Spanish, that those will naturally become the calling of Christians. So deacons in particular have this calling placed upon them that they are to befriend the sufferers. They're to befriend those who are suffering in misery and, and to be uh, an example to the rest of us of how to give that type of mercy to those who are in need, to be able to comfort those in their afflictions with the same comfort that the Lord has given to us in our afflictions. Right. So that's the, that's the, the pattern. And this is the way that the king has given us to... Show him reverence and honor, even in our offerings and worship unto God. It's not just a vertical relationship, but this horizontal loving relationship as well between the, the believer and the church. It should be the natural outcome for anyone who has received the gospel of Christ that the Lord writes down this law of love on our hearts that is easily seen by the church as well as by the community. They will know we are Christians by our love, right? So back in the 17th century, Oliver Cromwell was the Lord Protectorate after the king had been executed. And uh, there was a particular soldier in his army who had, had committed a crime, and he was going to be shot for that crime as soon as the bell rang for the evening curfew. Uh, however, Lord Cromwell was late coming to uh, the event, and the bell never rang. And so there were a bunch of people trying to figure out what's going on, why hasn't the curfew bell rung? And we see that the soldier's fiancée had climbed up into the belfry and had clung to the clapper of the bell to prevent it from striking, so each time she was getting struck herself, bodily bruised in every way. And when they finally brought her to... Oliver Cromwell, um, he was touched by her act of love. And he says, your lover shall live because of your sacrifice. Curfew shall not ring tonight. And I think if, uh, if I just give you the command to love, you've got to love. <laughs> uh, you're, you're not going to do it very well. But if you understand the love of God in Christ for us, uh, 
taking our punishment in our place, giving us mercy, loving the miserable ones. It should constrain us then to show that same love toward our brothers particularly, but even toward strangers and to our fellow sufferers in humanity. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, I ask that you would again help us. We are miserable naturally, uh, very unlovely and, and unloving. Uh, we look to Christ first and foremost. We look to the gospel as it is found in him that um, you loved us even while we were still sinners. Lord, help us to love sinners. Help us to love each other. Help us to love with the hope that we have in the gospel to be able to share something of the love of Christ in Jesus, we pray in his name.